Hey, grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 8. Uh, let me tell you that it, I, I, the notes we put in your bulletin have all the right verses, but they're not in the right order. I changed it up. But what's going to be on the screen is, and we put that on the screen, it gives you a chance to see what we're headed to next. So you can read and study along and then jump to the next one and the next one. And then we will just stick right in God's word together. So you see that pop up there with the John eight thirty one. That's where I'll be first. Let's pray. Lord, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would just literally stir, stir in our midst, God, you'd touch our hearts. You'd open us up to your truth. Lord, I know you want us to be free. It was for freedom, Jesus, you came that we might be set free. So I pray and ask that your Holy Spirit, God, really would enlighten us, help us to grasp the concepts that were coming from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, I don't know about you, but I'm a football fan, and probably some of you heard about it, but Tom Brady died, which, by the way, is a joke. It's a joke. That means at the end of the story, you're supposed to laugh. Okay. All right. So Tom Brady died and he goes to heaven and God meets him there. And, and God says, Tom, I am so glad you're here. I want to show you your mansion. And so God takes him into this beautiful mansion. It's gorgeous. But when they walk in the door, Tom Brady is shocked because there's his Super Bowl trophies. And he said, God, I didn't think I get to bring them here. And the Lord said, well, I don't let you bring everything here, but I'm a football fan. So those are here. We're not going to forget those. And uh, Tom's excited. He tours his mansion, thinks it's the greatest thing ever. Walks out in the backyard, looks across the way, a long ways, and sees a mansion 10 times the size of his. And there are seven flagpoles in the front yard, all with Denver Bronco flags flying on them. And then two-story high Tim Tebow jerseys hanging from the mansion. And so Tom Brady looks at God and says, God, I I don't want to be jealous, but why does Tim Tebow get a bigger mansion than mine? And God says, that's not his mansion, that's mine. (laughs) (laughs) You were supposed to laugh at the end. I thought I told, okay, all right. I think it's funny. You know what, we're going to be talking today and in the coming weeks all the way through February about this concept of jubilee. Jubilee means celebration to us, but it's born out of something else that doesn't act celebration. It's a time that literally all debt is forgiven. All, all, all things that were supposed to be in your life are restored and all relationships are redeemed. That's what God wants. And when you start studying the idea of jubilee, you go, whoa, God, this is so incredible and so amazing. And here's the thing. It literally is that God wants you to be free. He wants you to have a a life of freedom. And then Jesus begins to talk about how we have that happen in our life in John chapter 8, verses 31 to 36, where it says this in verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him. Now we're going to keep reading, but stop and think about this. If you're a Christian here today, a Christ follower, guess what? He's saying this to you. If you go, wow, that's a great message for non-Christians and Christ followers. I think it is a great message for people who know the Lord. I think when we begin to understand what he's saying, we can't miss this as for us. He was talking to people who believed in him. And notice what he says. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. If you continue in my word, in other words, if you're consistently in my word, not just kind of every now and then looking at or referring to, but you're consistently meeting with God and, and meeting with Jesus and studying his word and reading his word and then following his word. He says, then you know what you are? You're really my disciples. 
That's why in October, thousands of you said, you grabbed a card like this with the I tell on it. And the first of it is I, which is intentional intimacy. And we committed together that every single day we would continue in the word of God. Every single day, we would be intentionally in in connection with the Lord. And by the way, it's about an intimate connection, not just reading and studying. And Jesus said, if you do that, you're truly disciples of mine. And all of you have said to that, you're going to find great things happening in your life. And by the way, if you haven't done it yet, there are cards in the back. You get it. You pray about it. Fill them out and and join us in saying, you know what? We're going to be truly his disciples. We're really going to continue in his word. And Jesus said, when you do that, When you do that, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So we have to continue in his word and be his disciples to have that happen. Which brings us to something very intriguing. Verse 33. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, I think this is really interesting. And here's why. It's interesting they would even say this. It's even more interesting that Jesus didn't answer the way I thought he would answer. You know why? Because they look and say, We're, we aren't enslaved to anyone. Why didn't Jesus go, you see those Roman soldiers over there that are occupying our land? Think you're pretty enslaved. The taxes you're paying are super high. You don't think you're enslaved. Your children could be taken from you at any time because of the laws that exist. You're pretty enslaved. Jesus could have even said, in about 30 years, this place will be leveled because you don't listen to what they say and they'll cast you out of the land because you have no freedom whatsoever to make choices. You're very enslaved. Now, all of that was true. And they said, we're not enslaved to anyone. I got to tell you that in our day and time right now, there are a lot of people who are here in this room, a lot of us who are enslaved. And if I said, but you could know freedom, you might go, oh, but I'm free. But are you? Are you really free? Are you really free the way God wants you to be? Are you living the life God wants you to have? See, I hope you make a goal this year. This is the goal. I am going to get everything God wants for me to have. I'm going to live the life he has. So if you wrote it, I'm going to, this is what I want this year. Everything God wants for me. And he wants you to have freedom. And he wants you to have amazing love relationships. And he wants you to live life to the fullest. Jesus said, I came to have, that you might have life and life abundantly. That's what he wants for us. And too many times people go, oh, I have that. But they don't. Even Christians say they have it and they're still enslaved. Now, why are they enslaved? Because they don't live their lives according to the wisdom of God and the way of God. If you live your life according to the wisdom of God and the way of God, you'll be free. You'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. But, but we need to do that. And, and, and these people didn't. Here's what is even more intriguing, the answer he gives. Verse 34. Jesus answered and said, Truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And so here's the question we're going to delve into today and in the coming weeks. What are you enslaved to and how do you get set free from it? Uh, By the way, if you're in debt here today, guess what? That's sin. Uh, And I'm not trying to be mean. This is the one I struggle with. Obesity is a sin. Um, You know what? If you have an anger problem, that's a sin. If you have broken relationships over that and being deceitful and lying, those are sins. People are enslaved to all sorts of things. We're an addicted society. People are addicted to so many things and can't seem to get free from it. Why? They're enslaved to it. Do you realize here's what God is saying? I, I don't want you to live that way. So don't stand there and go, I'm free. Well, you're not free if those things are true. It doesn't matter that we actually are in a nation that loves freedom. You're not living free. And it's time we live free. It's time we experience jubilee. Verse 34, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. 
The Son does remain forever. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Now, don't miss that. If he makes you free, you're truly free. Here's what we're talking about. It doesn't matter what happens in our country economically. It doesn't matter what our government does. It doesn't matter what other people have done to you in your past. You and I can truly, truly be free indeed. By the way, that's why it's a long series all the way through February, because this isn't like this pipe dream out there, or it's not us kind of psyching ourselves out. It's about having true freedom, the reality of freedom, a real relationship with God that gives birth to freedom. That's what God wants you to have. And he wants you to have it in a way where you go, I really am free. I really am experiencing this. Now to get it, I'm going to give you three things that are deep, but I'm going to give it to you quick. So hopefully you're taking notes. Three things I'm going to give to you deep, and you're going to get it quick, and we're going to keep revisiting this. But to be free, I need to have, number one, a right focus. I need a right focus. I need to be focused on the right thing. And listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Did you catch that? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, then you're free. There's liberty. But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit. Now what he says is with unveiled face means I'm not hiding anything. With unveiled face says I admit my need and problem. By the way, anybody who knows anything about Celebrate Recovery, AA, what's the number one rule? You got to admit you have a problem. By the way, everybody here, we got to admit the problem we're facing, admit the thing that's keeping us enslaved. And with an unveiled face, we focus not on the problem, we focus on the Lord. And when we focus on the Lord, we find ourselves being transformed from glory to glory, being transformed into the image of Christ, into the person you was always meant to be. That's where it happens. Statistically, we know that at the beginning of the year, an incredible number of Americans make New Year's resolutions. The vast, vast majority do not keep them. They fail. Now, why? Because they focus on self and not on him. See, you're going to find it working when you and I focus on him. You know, when you focus, I'm going to lose 20 pounds, and you're looking at yourself in the mirror every day. But, you know, I got to tell you, if it's all focused on you, it's not going to be successful. But if you focus on the Lord, you're going to be. I'm going to get out of debt. Well, you know what? You're going to find things pulling you back in unless you focus on the Lord. Uh, I'm going to solve my relational issues. It's only going to happen when you focus on the Lord. And so that's the key. We must have the right focus. We must focus on him. And then the transformation comes. The second thing we need is a right heart. It starts at the right focus, but then it goes to a right heart. And listen to what it says here in verses uh, Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you, catch this, and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Now, now grab what's going on. He says, you know what? I'm going to give you a new heart and put my spirit within you. And what do we hear? Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. This is where freedom comes from. We focus on Jesus and we find the spirit of the Lord. We surrender to Jesus. We totally surrender to him and say, here I am and give me a new heart, Lord. I don't want the old heart. I don't want the old thoughts. I don't want the old attitudes. I need the one you have for me. And God says, I'll put it within you. Again, don't miss this. Being successful, being effective in the life you live comes not from you doing it, but from him empowering you and giving you a heart to do it. 
In other words, again, we don't focus on self, we focus on him. And we say, Lord, I want to have a heart that's your heart. And God says, if you have a heart that I want you to have, I'm going to cause you to obey. I'm going to move you in that direction. Now, it's not about us abdicating our role. It's about surrendering to God completely. And that's why, by the way, the T on here, uh, the I is intentional intimacy, focusing on the Lord and finding that freedom. T is that total surrender to God. And all of us who've done this say, you know what? That's what I want. Lord, I want to totally surrender to you. So I get the heart you have for me. And in doing that, I find myself being caused, motivated, empowered by you to do this. So it starts with the right focus, goes to a right heart. You ready for this? It also needs a right power. The verse I'm about to read at first, you might go, well, does that fit right power? But I think you see it will. John chapter 15 says this, abide in me and I in you is the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. So you you can't do it. You can't bear the fruit. You can't be effective unless you abide in him. Verse five, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit for apart from me. Now this is key. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I got to tell you, for years, the Lord has kept prompting me, I think in my spirit with that truth. He shows me in his word. Lately, it's been hitting me more and more. Apart from him, I can do nothing. I can't lead correctly apart from Jesus. I can't be a father or a husband apart from Jesus. I can't be the friend I need apart from Jesus. I can't make the right decisions apart from Jesus. I really can't. I need him. And you know what? Here's the key. He gives me the power. I don't get the power by psyching myself up or generating it on my own. I only get it when I go to him. And so here's the point. If you caught it, a right focus is I focus on the Lord. A right heart is I get the heart from the Lord. And a right power, I get it from the Lord. Here's the biggest key of all. To get that amazing life, go to him. Go to him. He will bless you with it. He will affect it within you. He wants you to have that freedom and freedom indeed. Now, I'm about to do a little bit of a shift, but it ties to what we said. But let me tell you what I'm trying to share. I'm going to give you the main point. You ready? God's ways are better. Now, you caught that? This is, if you want to, I'm about to ask you to think this through. Will you agree with me in a few minutes that the idea of Jubilee comes from God's ways and God's ways are better? If I do it according to his way, if I continue in his word, live my life according to what he says, it's better than any other thing I could do. It's better, it works, it's more effective. That's what God has for me. Now, to kind of illustrate why that's even an issue, uh, there's uh, what, something floating around out there, what I call the humanistic rant. It, it's based on an idea of humanism where man is superior to God. And so years ago, I saw this, and I've seen it come back repeatedly with the internet. It's revisited from time to time. And someone happened to put it on my webpage. The person who put it on my webpage, I, I really think they had great heart. I think they just thought they were having fun, and, and they probably were. But they put, you know, it's like 17 things they put on there, and they said, Ch Pastor Chuck, can you answer these? And so I let them know that a day was coming like this where I would give an answer. But uh, I, I want us to, to look at three. I can't go into all of them today, but the three answers I'm going to give fit all of them, and you'll see it. Some of you have heard it, some of you haven't. But let's just kind of think about the, what I call the humanism, the humanistic rant that mocks Scripture, that says that the Bible's archaic, that says the Bible's out of date, that says the Bible doesn't work. And I'm going to tell you, I don't think that's true. I think the Bible is more needed today than ever. I think man's problems today are more because we don't follow Scripture than ever. I think our problems are, and so I'm going to have you grab this, is God's ways right, but let's go to the humanistic mocking. The first thing they say is this, and it'll pop up on the screen behind me. Um, I know 
from Leviticus 11, 6 to 8, that touching the skin of a dead pig makes me unclean. But my, may I still play football if I wear gloves? I think it's kind of funny, don't you? Yeah. All right, so that's the first one. Okay, uh, uh, and we'll talk about that. Second one, my uncle has a farm, which by the way, I bet money they're lying. Almost nobody has a farm today, so I'll bet money their uncle doesn't have a farm, so they already started off by lying. Um, my uncle has a farm. He violates Leviticus 19.19 19 by planting two different crops in the same field, as does his wife by wearing garments made of two different kinds of thread, cotton and polyester blend. He also tends to curse and blaspheme a lot. Is it really necessary that we go to all the trouble of getting the whole town together to stone him, according to Leviticus 24.10-16? Couldn't we just burn them to death at a private family affair like we do with people who sleep with their in-laws, Leviticus 20.14? This is kind of funny, huh? The answer is yes. No, that's not. So. We'll, we'll get into the answer, but I thought that's funny. Uh, let's give a third one. I would like to sell my daughter into slavery as a sanction in Exodus 21.7. In this day and age, what do you think would be a fair price for her? She's obviously in junior high. Um, I'm kidding. Okay, th- th- there's like 17 of those. They just, and, and er- they go through an evolution. But that's the idea behind it. Well, I want to delve into those and have us come, hopefully, to a, a conclusion that we would all agree on. That you know what? Even though that, that's meant and fun, it's mocking God's word. And the people who are behind that think with their humanistic point of view, their humanistic philosophy, they have a better system, which we're living under right now, than God's. And I'm going to tell you, I, I think you're in a minute, you're going to say, no, God's right. I'm going to say God's right. But let's start with the, the, the underlying foundational concept we need to get to. Francis Chan said this. He says, when it comes to these kind of issues, where we look at the Bible and go, really? Really? He said, he, he asked this question. Is it possible that God has a more defined and fair sense of justice than we do? Now, Francis will be with this in a couple of weeks, but I, I love that he, what he says. He goes, okay, before you start going down that road, ask yourself a question. Is what you see happening in our culture really truly better than what God's sense of wisdom is? His fairness is? His justice is? Because there's all sorts of areas where this culture mocks and attacks what the Bible teaches, but are we better off because of it? Or has God got a better, better sense of justice and fairness? Uh, think about that. By the way, the Bible says he does. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 to 20 say, Let no man deceive himself. In other words, when we think we're smarter than God and the Bible's out of date, Don't deceive yourself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, according to what we do, if we think, oh, this is so smart and we're so civilized and the Bible's so archaic, it says, if any man thinks he's wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. In other words, you're going to have to say, no, let the world call me a fool. Verse 19, for the wisdom of the world is foolishness before God. God looks at what we're doing in the world today and says, you are just foolish in what you're doing. And then he goes on to say, for it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasoning of the wise that they are useless. Now, the Bible is saying right here, God inspired Paul to write, that when you and I live our life according to this culture, according to what's going on in the world system, that it's foolish and useless. And he says, but if you live your life according to my way, it's wise and effective, and then you become free. And and a lot of Christians are living their lives. The truth of the matter is, you say you believe in God, but are you living your life according to his word and his ways, or are we making our decisions according to a world system? 
that we've been caught up in. And therefore, God says you'll be enslaved. So let's dig into that and start looking at each one of those a little at a time. Let's start with the football. Okay, is it okay uh, uh, for me to touch a football? Uh, you know, because it says you're not allowed to touch the, the, the skin of a dead pig. Well, the answer to that's pretty easy. All footballs are made out of calf skin or thin synthetic leather. It's not even made out of pig skin. Whoever did this didn't do the research well enough. Um, I hate to say stupid, but... Um, I mean, it's not even a question. It's not an issue. And they're ludicrous in the statement, which by the way, they all end up ludicrous. So bottom line is throw the football all you want. It's not really a pigskin. How about the second one? What about wearing a a, a blended garment? So in other words, is it okay to wear polyester? The answer to that's obvious. No, it's a sin to wear polyester. (laughs) It is fashion suicide to wear polyester. It's an abomination. All of us in the 70s that wore polyester suits, are you hiding those pictures? Um, you know, uh, you know I, I got to tell you, I, I just know God is right. Polyester was never okay. I mean, Ronnie Roa would not look good in polyester. Casey Butler would not look good in polyester. It's just literally fashion suicide. So I think God's right. Okay, let's go on. More seriously. Do you realize that God, he wants you free. He wants you pure. He wants you to live a life that's abundant and wonderful and incredible. And so what happens is he begins to call for that. And so when we look at the book of Leviticus, you begin to see a God who loves that way. And we're going to get into that in a second. I think you're going to see it. But grab that's what's happening. God wants purity. God wants purpose. God wants your life to have, have less effort to it than very often we end up throwing ourselves into. He wants you to have freedom. And so that's why he digs into it. And when you look at the book of Leviticus or you look at the other Exodus or the other parts of the law, we don't just cast them aside and say, oh, how ridiculous. What we do is look at the underlying foundational truths, the principles that flow out of it. That's actually what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3, 4 to 6. It says, such confidence we have through Christ toward God. We can be confident in the things of God, he says. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. In other words, how do we find ourselves living an adequate, effective life? How do we raise ourselves up? The answer is, don't look at self, don't look at culture, look to God. That's why the right focus, right heart, the right power, all is the key to this happening. But then he says in verse six, who has made us also adequate as servants of a new covenant. Where do we find this freedom? In in the New Testament, the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, the point that Paul's making is the Old Testament letter of the law is not what you and I are to look at. It's the spirit in which it was written. It's the the reason that it was written. It's what God was trying to accomplish. When you look at it and you apply it today correctly, biblically, you're going to find that God's right and the world system that mocks it is wrong. So so let's go to the first one. Uh, uh, Most everybody back then were agricultural people. They, They made their profession and living based on agriculture. And God said, when you plant a field, I want you to plant a field and don't mix the crops. And I want them planted in, a, in beautiful straight rows. And I want your fields in very, very laid out squares, perfect squares. Now, back in this time, we know that in Egypt, they didn't do that. We know that in Babylon, they didn't do that. We know in areas, and they would mix things. And when you mix the crops, number one, they're not as productive. But here's the second one. They're not as beautiful and they're not as pure. 
Because if you mix wheat and corn together, it hurts each of the crops. But if you put them separately and line them up, as you walk in, you go, wow, that looks incredible. If you guys ever driven through the cornfields of Kansas and go, they're just incredible looking because we plant crops that way today, by the way, because it's more productive. By the way, it's also easier to harvest and easier to take care of. So God said, I want your lives to be that way. But catch this, this is even bigger. If you were traveling back then in the land, in that, Medi- that, that Middle Eastern area, and you saw all the other crops, and you came into Israel, you would look and see beautiful, perfect, laid-out fields, and you would go, there's something different here. By the way, all of you who are Christ followers, Christians, let's, let's apply that to our work today. Do you agree that a Christian ought to work hard and be honest and do things purely in the place they work for? Do you guys agree that should be the case? That we should stand out that way? See, and and that's what it's saying. You do it that way so people step back and go, wow, there's something different about you guys because you know God. There's something else, though, that even goes even bigger. It's about God's love and care. See, he said, I want you to put your fields lined up perfectly, not all mixed together, and in squares, so that not only you know which field is yours and which field's another, but so you can do something to affect the community in an amazing way. That's the principle that comes out of this. He says, I want you to have square fields, but you harvest them in the round. You harvest them in a circle. Listen to what he says, Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. Now, when you reap the harvest of the land, you shall not reap the very corners of the field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of the vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Now, when you start to understand this, it gets incredible. He says, I want you to do it in a circle. If things fall off while you do it, you give that, you just leave it and let those who are in need come and get it. And you leave the corners for those in need. Leviticus 23, 22. When you reap the harvest of your land, moreover, you shall not reap the very corners of the field, nor gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall leave them for the needy and the alien. I am the Lord your God. Now, I want you to think about how right God is in this. Uh, Nick Caranda, who attends our church, and I love Nick, and I, he does, I don't think he'd like me to say that. I think Nick's a genius. I really do. And so what happened, the first time he ever, ever heard me talk on this, he got all excited and laid out the mathematics of what would occur. So what I'm about to show you, I don't even know if it's right. I just trust Nick. It's beyond me. But what he did is he said, what would happen if you had a square field and you harvested it that way? What would the outcome of that be? Are you ready for the outcome? If you leave the corners you would be leaving out 21.5% of the field. In other words, you would say the 80% of what I just earned in my profession and the company I own or whatever I keep, that's ours. And then 20% goes into job creation. Now, now you're going to understand what I mean in a moment. In other words, if you did it in a circle, and by the way, you can see that's what it would really look like if you were to see fields, um, you would leave 21%. All of the people who didn't have as much all of the people who were struggling in society, they would stand back and watch you harvest that field. And then when you were done, you'd say, okay, it's your turn. And they would come in and they would do their own harvest in a small way. Now here's where we're going. You ready? It's not a handout. It's not a handout. You have to come work. In other words, someone's in need. You have a way for them to actually have a life and have food and have care, but they they have to actually come out and show motivation and do it. While they're standing and waiting, they're seeing the proper way to harvest. So they're being taught. And then it's time to come in and get it. Now, I don't know if you caught where I'm going, but that's what God says we should do in those kinds of situations. Now, now think about this. Like, I don't know about you, but I do. I do every now and then I'll see someone in need and I'll give them five bucks. Does that help them? Yes. Yes. 
But would you agree with me it would help them more if I went up and said, hey, if you come to my house and do this kind of work, I'll give you 25. You know what that gives them? Dignity. A handout does not give dignity. But what God is saying is, I don't want you to give a handout. I want you to call people to come and give them a place they can earn and make it and learn and then get dignity in their life. Now, I'm going to get a little political. We're in a country today that's giving handouts and we're perpetuating poverty. Wouldn't you agree? We're doing that to people. And so when those people stand and mock the Bible, which one's better? Which one's better? Well, let's take it to another level. What if the top 100 corporations in the United States decided to do this? What if the top 100 corporations? I, I actually looked in June or in the year 2010, the top 100 corporations made $425 billion in profit. Some of them lost money, so we X those out. Just the ones, the top 100s that made it, they, they made $425 billion in profits. Now, that, that's a lot of money. By the way, that is not just earnings. That's profit after they take depreciation, after they pay taxes, after they pay bonuses, all those kinds of things. So they have $425 billion left over. So if you took 21% of that, that's $102 billion that if they were following the ways of God, they would invest back into our economy through job creation and innovation. Now, now, how much money is that? Well, $102 billion is so much that if you laid dollar bills end to end, it would go to the moon 20, 20 times and back, back and forth. That's a lot of dollars. It's so many dollars that if you stack them up neatly in this building, you could fill this building twice. Literally every space, not just in here, every space through our whole building, it would take two times to have $102 billion. And if you poured that money back into job creation, what would that do to our economy? I'll tell you one thing it would do. It means our college graduates could graduate and get this thing called a job, which would be kind of nice. You know, um, by the way, it means those companies would actually, Nick was telling me, make a higher profit because if they would invest in job creation, they would lower their taxation level. It would mean that they would actually be creating customers because when they come out and they start investing in job creation, they would create loyalty to their company and people would now have money to turn around and buy back. That's actually called smart and wisdom, you know, but that's not what we do today, is it? What do we do today? I'm going to get real political. We take millions of dollars and hand it to companies who are failing and who never give back a penny. How many people right now are losing homes to banks that were given money from our government? And they're not returning it. You know what? I got to say this. The ways of God are better. The ways of God are wiser. And not just in the United States, Russia, all the others have the same problem. They're going by man's wisdom and not God's wisdom. And they're not thinking. And we can mock the idea of the straight fields and all that. But I'll tell you what, I wish we were a country that did it. We would see this be a whole new day for people and a chance for hope. And that's what God would want for us. And so we need to understand that. How about when it comes to overly indebted people? The Bible says that the borrower is the slave of the lender. Proverbs 22, verse 7 says the borrower becomes the lender's slave. That means that everybody in here who has credit card debt, you're enslaved. Everybody in here who has a mortgage payment, you're enslaved. By the way, God has a way, if we follow his wisdom, we can actually have a jubilee moment and get set free. Uh, when we buy a car, we become a slave to a car company. We're an enslaved society. We're going to get even more into what that means right now in a moment. But, but here's the thing. We're such an enslaved society. This last year, we set a new record. One million people had to declare bankruptcy just in 2011. 
And the vast majority of them do it and never have a future and never have a hope. They're left languishing. It's very difficult to get out of it. We don't pave a way for them. We just leave them. That's the society we live in today. And God says, no, if you get that indebted, now here's where we go. Listen, you got to listen. You can sell yourself into slavery. And many of us go, whoa. That doesn't sound like a good plan, but let's think about it. But let's read the verse first. Leviticus 25, 39 to 41. If a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave service. He is your slave, but you don't treat him like a slave. You, you don't treat him like a slave. Listen in, I'll tell you more about that in verse 40. He shall be with you as a hired man, as if he were a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee, which we're going to get into in a second. He then shall go out from you, he and his sons with him, and shall go back to his family, that he may return to the property of his forefathers. Now God said, I don't want anybody, when they've got so indebted, they can't make it to have to live that way the rest of their life. I want them to have a way out. I want them to have a future. I, want, I don't want to just leave it so they're in trouble. I want to make sure they get out of it. So what they can do is sell themselves into slavery, but you can't treat them like a slave. You got to treat them like a hired person. You got to give them dignity. You have to give them a job to do. You have to give them vocational training. You have to help them through this time. And at one point, you have to release them from it. Here's what I want you to grab. When we think of biblical slavery, what the slavery of the Bible that is not the slavery of the United States. It's not the horrid slavery we hear about in other parts of the world. If someone is a slave in the Bible, number one, they have to be fed, they have to be clothed, they have to have a quality place to sleep, and they have to be cared for. Number two, they are not allowed to be hurt, beaten, or mistreated. If a slave was hurt, beaten, or mistreated, they had to immediately be set free, and the person who did it had to actually go through some form of judicial punishment. You couldn't hurt a slave. You couldn't beat them. That would be wrong. If you hurt them in a bad way so they couldn't work, you had to care for them the rest of their life. And if you didn't, all that you had would be sold to do it. Does that sound like the slavery of the United States? And how about this? If a person didn't like being a slave, all they had to do is say, I don't want to be a slave anymore. And they just go to a city of refuge and say, I don't want to be their slave anymore. And the city of refuge had to give them a home and job training and a chance to move forward. In other words, you catch what's going on. This is what God is saying. I just don't want people caught in such bondage they can't make it. I want them to have hope. I want them to be set free. And by the way, if you became a slave, there was two options. One, you could be set free in seven years. But the other is everybody was set free at the year of Jubilee. That happened every 50 years. And at the 50th year, all debt was wiped out. At the 50th year, all family was returned together. And at 50 years, all property was given. Could you imagine how it would have felt if on January the 1st, 2012, it was a year of Jubilee and everybody in this room had your debt forgiven? Do you think you might have celebrated? That's how we got the word Jubilee. What would that mean if all your family was restored to a healthy relationship? And if you lost a home, we gave your home back to you. I mean, they just, and, and, and by the way, that's what created this amazing celebration, your idea of Jubilee. And God wanted people to live that way. Why? God doesn't want you in bondage. He wants you free. God wants you to have hope. He doesn't want to have it just be a handout. You got to do things in your life, but he wants to help you. He wants, and see, God says, why don't we have a society, a community that helps each other, that cares for each other, that reaches out for each other. And, and, and we would do that. Now, I don't know if you're aware of it, but we're doing the opposite today. We have enslaved one generation of our country. We're about to enslave another. 
Two generations of our country are actually enslaved today and it's getting worse and worse and worse. Here's where I'm going. You and I know the only way anybody can get a viable job today, predominantly anyway, is to get a college education. The vast majority of, of young people in our country cannot afford a college education. And it's actually growing beyond anybody's ability to keep up. So what do we do? We tell them either you don't get a college education, which means you don't get a good job, or you get this thing called student loans. And in June of 2010, there was more money owed in student loans than all credit card debt combined. And, and it's getting worse. And by the way, if you declare bankruptcy, you still owe the loan. You're enslaved to that loan. And by the way, where do most credit card debts come from? From college students who are given a credit card that can't afford it, so they'll get hooked on it while they get their student loan. I'm not kidding. We're enslaving a generation. And it's getting bad. Uh, there is more money owed in student loans than twice the amount that the 100 corporations in the United States made in, a, in, in the year. In other words, our top 100 corporations couldn't pay back the student loans. And when I was doing this study, the student loan amount was $884 billion in the United States. But it's growing so fast, no one can catch up. And I want to show you how fast it's growing. Look at this. That's a live clock based on interest and on loans being taken out. And just a few months ago, it was at $884 billion. Now we're at $970 billion being owned. We're about to go over $1 trillion in student loans. Now, what God said was this. Don't do that to your kids. If they end up needing help and they need to borrow from you to get it, then the longest they can work is seven years. And then you set them free and give them enough money to set them up to have a great life. I don't know about you, that sounds a lot smarter than what we're doing today. Our best and brightest are enslaved. By the way, I, just being an, I'm not a true economist, but all you who are econ economists, what do you think is going to happen when that number goes over a trillion to our country, to our economy? We're hurting ourselves. God's ways are way better than the humanistic rants. And um, what about selling your children into slavery? Well, well, here's what the Bible's teaching. Don't miss it. By the way, remember the corners of the fields are there so you would always have food for your kids? If a child reached the point they couldn't be cared for, that means either someone became a part of an addictive behavior like alcoholism or something, or they became so, you know, so hurt either physically or, or through illness that they couldn't care. And now they were overwhelmed and they're at a place of no hope. And the, you know what the Bible taught? The Bible said then you can actually take your child, sell it into slavery. But well, here's what that means. You give your child to someone who would pay off all your debt and give you enough time to go out and earn money and get back on your feet. Then you get your child back. But during that time, the person who had the child was to give them food, clothes, a quality place to sleep, vocational training, and, and direction in their life. Now, now, I want you to think about what that means. That means, let's say Pam and I were doing okay and you weren't. And I, I went up to you and I said, hey, and your kid doesn't look like they're eating very well. And you're like, no, I barely can make it. I, I talked to a young guy today. Do you know he's crying his eyes out? He says, I can't afford diapers. And he said, what do I do? In our country, what's the answer? Well, the church will help, but we don't have a hope for you. In that time, what we would do is I'd go up to him and say, hey, I'll tell you what. I'll pay off your debt. How much you owe? He says, $60,000. Okay, I'm going to pay off $60,000. I'm just going to go pay it, so I'll take your child. 
And during the time that you're going out to get your life back together, I'm going to make sure your child has good food and good medical care and good clothes and a wonderful place to sleep. And I'll have them do things in their life to create more self, a positive self-image. And I'll train them so they can go out and have an education. And, 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 and you know what? In six years, you can come get your child back. If you can do it sooner, we'll do it sooner. If not, I'll prepare your child to be able to go out and live successfully. That's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says you do with a child like that. I want to have you think about, what does our country do? 500,000 children right now are in foster care in the United States. Now, I know that there are some parents who attend here that are wonderful foster parents, but I even think all the foster parents would agree, we have a broken system. And what do we do? Do we invest $60,000 so that child becomes mine? No, we put them in a home where people make money off that child. And then when they turn 18, we just set them out on the street. 30 to 35% of foster children end up homeless. We have a horrible system. We're hurting our kids. And the humanists that rant and say the Bible's wrong, what are they talking about? And, and the reality is, is God says, you don't treat your kids like that. You, ha- you get people to go care for them. You might, some of you might say, who would pay 60000 to take a child in for a short period of time and care for them? You know who would do that? People who love. People, and you know, the Bible's that way. And see, that's what happens. When we go God's direction, it changes everything. What if we were a society that says our kids are more important than that? And kids deserve better than that. You know what we'd be? We'd be a Bible, that, a society that's following the ways of the Bible that some people mock and say is out of date. I don't know about you, Bring back the good old days. That, that's what it should be like. And God's saying that. And you might say, well, wait a minute. How does that apply to me? Get ready. We're going to apply it next week and the week after. We're going to get into it more in depth about how it applies in your life. Let me go ahead and give a really good application now. What we're talking about is a God who loves you so much, he sees you as a child. A God who cares about you so much that he says, I don't want you caught up and overwhelmed in sin. I don't want you enslaved to anything, so just come and be set free. Don't do it on your own effort. Some people go, I'll become a Christian when I get my act together. That's the worst idea. Become a Christian so he gets your act together. Don't do it to earn it. Do it to receive it. Come and say, God, here I am. I want to give myself to you and have the right focus, the right heart, and get the right power. And today, I want to tell you, if you're here today, and it doesn't matter what is is affecting you, if it's financial debt, if it's addictive behavior, if it's you're caught up in, in any kind of sin that just it shames you, if you have pain from the past and what's been done to you, God says, come to me and let me pour my love on you. Let me call you to me. Let me cleanse you completely. Let me make you brand new. That's what God wants to do. And, and today, if you've never done that, what you need to do is you just need to pray a prayer and say, God, I want it. It's that, that I, I want to say easy. You know why? Because Jesus died on the cross and did the hard part. Just say, God, I'm ready. And then he's going to say, come to me and start experiencing Jubilee. Come to me and expar- start experiencing the Jubilee. And then, by the way, some of the Jubilee moment happens immediately. Some take some time as we enact his word. I'm going to ask all of us to gather together to join in that as a church family to enact it in our lives. But um, I'm going to ask you today, if you don't know the Lord, would you tell him yes? In a moment, we're going to pray. Would you just say yes to him? If you're a Christian here today, notice Jesus was saying this to people who believed in him. If you're a Christian here today and you're not truly free, You're not living so close to God, you're just amazed at what happens.
I'm going to ask you to recommit your life. Maybe you've done some things you shouldn't do. You know, God still loves you. As a matter of fact, he couldn't love you more than he does. So just open up to him. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would literally, literally, truly come into this room. Father, that you would just grab us all and help us all in unity together as a church family to focus on you and have the right focus. God, that you'd make sure our hearts are right before you and you'd cause us to walk in your ways. And Lord, I pray that we would be empowered by you because apart from you, we can't do it. We can do nothing. But Lord, with you, we can do everything. So I pray right now that we would be a people who are committed to you. And I pray, oh God, that you'd stir in our church family and help us to help each other. And Father, right now, I want to pray for anybody who needs to say yes to you. Oh God, I pray right now, our Heavenly Father, our Abba Father, I pray you'd start touching them. And I pray right where they're sitting, they know this is their moment in time, either to come to you for the first time or to recommit their life, to say yes, that now they're gonna live with you and for you in the way you say. So God, I pray that's about to happen. I pray it's about to stir. And as we keep praying, And right now, if you want to say yes to God or you want to recommit your life to him, I want to tell you he loves you, he wants you, he desires this for you. So I'm going to ask you right where you're sitting to whisper a prayer with me. Let's pray it together. Say these words. Say, Lord Jesus, I know you love me. And I know you died on the cross so that I would be completely forgiven of all my sin so I would be healed of all hurt and all pain, so that I would be freed from my past and truly free. And oh, you want me to be yours. And today I say, yes, I want to be. I want to be yours completely. So I open my heart to you. Please fill me with your love. Oh, fill me with your spirit. And help me, Lord, live the life you have for me. Help me live it with you. Help me live it for you. And I love being yours. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you prayed that prayer today, praise God.